Jonah is quite a character. And by that I mean he's quite a character in the biblical story. That is, he makes a big impression through a relatively brief appearance in the biblical narrative, but also he's quite a character in terms of the sorts of decisions and attitudes and personality he exhibits. He's got thoughts and ideas, of course, but he's also quite the action figure. He runs from God's instructions to go in one direction, hops on a ship going the other direction, finds himself in the middle of a terrible storm, finally gets thrown overboard by superstitious sailors. There's lots of drama in the story of Jonah, drama and danger. Seems that that would come to an end when he is thrown into the sea, but no, the action continues. You remember the story, right? He's swallowed by a fish, He comes to his senses, so to speak, and prays to God for deliverance from inside the fish. He's spit up onto dry land. I mean, it's one thing after another. And then after all of that, the scriptural tale is like a story on rewind, as it's back to square one with God telling him yet again to go to Nineveh. And this time he does, and that's where our scripture for today picked up. This time when Jonah hears the call, he obeys the call. Apparently he's found out the hard way. If you try to run, you will run into trouble. If you try to disobey, you won't get away. So the scripture for this morning was that rewind section, that second calling. Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, proclaim to it the message that I tell you. And this time Jonah does, calling for them to repent, and the people respond. Within a day, it's a three-day trip across the city. Within one day, the people are responding in the whole city. Sackcloth and ashes, fasting, they repent. And rather than destroying Nineveh, God chooses to change God's mind and spares them. Now, if we would have continued on in the scripture, this story of God changing God's mind, deciding to spare the people of Nineveh rather than destroying them, apparently really upsets Jonah kind of pitches a fit, if you remember. But that part of the story is a story for another time. For our purposes this morning, this is what we need to know. God calls Jonah. Jonah runs away. Jonah suffers serious setbacks. God calls Jonah again, and this time Jonah responds. Goes where he's called to go, does what he's called to do. It's a big swing and a miss the first time around, but the second time Jonah connects connects with God's calling, connects with God's purpose for him. Takes a big fail the first time around, but he makes good on the second chance calling. Like I said, Jonah's quite a character, but I offer to us this question. Is he any more or any less of a character than any of us? Now, of course, God doesn't seem to always give us such precise GPS coordinates head on down to Nineveh. And God doesn't typically send dramatic ocean storms to toss the boat we have boarded, even as we may have been thinking we'll get away without doing what we are supposed to be doing. That is, when we take the swift boat to elsewhere... God doesn't send a wild storm and suspicious sailors and a fish to swallow us, saving us first and spitting us up later. But all those dramatic narrative elements aside, how different are we from Jonah, really? 
Think about those times when you feel convicted, when you feel called. Those convictions, they're almost like a calling, aren't they? I really should do something about this hurting situation. Or I really should speak up about this injustice. Or I really should stop thinking just about myself and do for others. You feel convicted. And you might as well be hearing the very voice of God. And maybe it is the voice of God, that whisper of your conscience. And yet you turn and head in the opposite direction. Or at the very least, you decide not to risk a confrontation. Or a blow to your ego. Or to put a relationship on thin ice. Or to have someone criticize you. Instead of going to Nineveh, you buy the ticket to Tarshish. There's this important thing right in front of us, the opportunity to act with conviction, the call to risk for what is right, but we get on the boat heading the other way. I'm the only one? Since leaving North Manchester at the end of July last year and moving with my wife and daughter to our lake cottage on the Barbie chain of lakes, my oldest young adult son has been living in our North Manchester house. He had already been living there with us when we were there, working and saving money for graduate school. But once we moved out, he became the primary occupant. Sometime late this last fall, he said to me, you don't mind if I put up some flags, do you? Flags, I said. Yes. He said, I've ordered two flags and I'd like to put them out on the front porch. I told him that was fine. I don't even remember asking what flags he was talking about. And sure enough, the next time I went to the house, there were two flags hanging from the front porch. One, a Palestinian flag, and the other, a pride flag. And it turns out I didn't need to talk to him about the specific why in regard to flying those particular flags from our front porch. I know the Palestinian flag is because of what is happening in Gaza and because he and I have been to Israel and the West Bank and have visited and talked with Palestinians, both Christians and Muslims, and through those encounters have seen and experienced in just a alongside small kind of way the checkpoint-limited daily humiliation, loss of home and land kind of life that they live. And now from the, safety from, our, uh, from the safety of our own homes and our own lives, we watch the relentless bombing of mostly women and children in Gaza. So I understood why he wanted to put that flag up on the front porch. And the pride flag? I know that he believes in equality and dignity and respect of all persons, regardless of gender identity or sexual orientation, along with embracing many others whose identity characteristics our culture marginalizes and demeans. And I know that he grew up in a community where some of his peers, maybe more of them than I know, scorned him or at least pigeonholed him because he went to the gay church and his dad was the pastor. And now, as then, rather than fleeing from that, he decided to own it, double down on it, if you will. So since there's no avoiding what others might think, instead he embraces it. But here's the thing I wonder about. 
we lived there in that house for years and years, all of us together. And for all that time, he never asked if he or we could put those symbols up in front of the house until we moved out and he remained. I haven't asked him, but I wonder why that is. And I wonder this too, even if he didn't do it or asked to do it years before, why didn't I do it years before? I think I know the answer. For all those years I lived in that community, two decades in fact, I was always aware of my outsider status. In direct and in indirect ways, I received a repeated message. You believe in things we don't believe in. You're not one of us. So it was clear that people already knew what I believed about injustice, about inclusion, about the importance of granting everyone their humanity. They already knew what I stood for. I already had a reputation in the community. So why stir things up more? Why march on to Nineveh? Now, I didn't run in the other direction, so I'm not completely Jonah-like, but I understand the impulse to avoid, to avoid confrontation, to avoid even uncomfortableness. Did I want to talk to my religiously and socially conservative across-the-street neighbor about anything other than the weather and how the kids were doing? Not really. Do banners and flags displayed on the porch help us to get along better with those who walk up and down the street? Probably not. But is it important to be clear about your calling and clear about your convictions and willing to lay aside the comfortable for the risky? Yes, of course. And the reason is this. When God calls us, the expectation is that we will make a bold response. That we won't duck our heads and turn away. That we will stand up and get going. That is, God's call is the call to get up and get moving. You may not be attracted to Nineveh, but if Nineveh is where the road is pointing, then to Nineveh you go. Now, even as we declare that moving forward is God's expectation, we also know that hesitation is a human response. Resistance to the unexpected, the unusual, the unanticipated is a human response. Reluctance to take a new path is a human response. Unwillingness to put yourself on the line, even when you know that you are meant for such a time as this, is a human response. Questioning your calling, questioning whether it is God who is calling, is a human response. And yet, here we are. Here we are, called to something better than just settling for survival. Here we are, called to stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. Here we are, called to advocate for children. All children, especially those who are suffering. Children who are hungry or cold. Children in Gaza and Israel and on the West Bank, in the Ukraine and in Russia and in many other places of deprivation or conflict around the world. Here we are called to serve and to share what we have. Here we are called to boldly challenge those who seek to dehumanize any of God's children. Here we are called to be people of inclusion and hospitality, compassion and grace, because we are called to continue the work of Jesus. Here we are called to risk reputation and status if necessary 
in our quest to become the people God intends us to become. Here we are called to obey God, to forgive others, to follow Jesus. Jonah heads in the opposite direction until he gets the message through an underwater adventure. But then the second time around, given a second chance, we might say, he answers the call. Over in the New Testament scripture for today, the call is less confrontational, less dramatic. Again, the sea is the setting, but Jesus is just walking by. And as he walks by, he says to Simon and Andrew, who are fishermen casting their nets, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. Moments later, it's James and John that he calls as well. It seems less dramatic than the call that Jonah receives to go to Nineveh, but is it? After all, Simon and Andrew and then James and John aren't just asking, asked to be one-time prophets, to deliver a God message just this one moment in time. They're being asked to walk away from the life they've been living and take the road less traveled. They're being asked to follow without knowing where they're actually going and what they will actually do. Follow me and I will make you fishers of people. What does that mean? What will it cost them? How will it put them to risk? What kinds of conflicts and confrontations will it lead to? What will they lose and what will they gain? How will it change them? They know none of this. They just know that Jesus is calling them to go to leave behind the life they've known and to embark on a new one. They just know that God has something new in mind for them and it's time to get going, time to get on the move. Their response seems simple, but really it's remarkable. Jesus calls and they follow, full of uncertainty perhaps, but full enough of trust to put one foot in front of the other. I think it's time for us to get on the move, too. I know I just got here, but I think it's time. We have a calling. In some ways, it's very clear. We know what kind of people, what kind of community God is calling us to be. We know what our core convictions are, what our commitments are. We know that we are continuing the work of Jesus peacefully, simply together, that we're aiming to be Jesus in the neighborhood. We know that God's love is for all and that we are called to be vessels of such love. But where does that take us? What should we be doing? How do we get from here to there, wherever there is? That's less clear. Which way is Nineveh and which way is Tarshish? Or to put it in Jesus' terms, how exactly are we to be fishers of people? What's the path? What's the next move we need to make? The next step we need to take? Those are interesting questions, aren't they? They're critical questions. I can assure you of this. We will figure it out. We will find the path. We'll put one foot in front of the other. We will find the way. Unless we get too confident or cocky, sometimes we will find the way with the gracious help of others. Others who see us for who we are and then help to point us in the direction of who we are meant to be, the direction of our true and divine calling. Will it be easy? Hardly. Will we be sure that we're headed in the right direction? Not always. Will we get the help we need? Hopefully. We will find our way. We will find our way into the unknown, and at the same time, we will find our way home. 
I want to close with a story <clears throat> by Barbara Brown Taylor from one of her more recent books, Learning to Walk in the Dark. It's a story about uncertainty and purpose and finding the way home and about how life turns us upside down sometimes in order to get us right side up. Little story of hope. Barbara writes, a few years ago, Ed, that's her spouse, and I were exploring the dunes of Cumberland Island, one of the barrier islands between the Atlantic Ocean and the mainland of southern Georgia. He was looking for fossils. I was watching out for sand spurs, so neither of us was looking very far past our own feet, and the huge loggerhead turtle took us both by surprise. She was still alive, but just barely. Her shell hot to the touch from the noonday sun. We both knew what had happened. She had come ashore during the night to lay her eggs. When she had finished, she had looked around for the brightest horizon to lead her back to the sea, and mistaking the distant lights on the mainland for the sky reflected on the ocean, she went the wrong way. Judging by her tracks, she dragged herself through the sand until her flippers were buried and she could go no further. We found her where she had given up, half cooked by the sun, but still able to turn one eye up to look at us when we bent over her. I buried her in cool sand while Ed ran to the ranger station. An hour later, she was on her back with, cha with tire chains around her front legs, being dragged behind a park service jeep back toward the ocean. The dunes were so deep that her mouth filled with sand as she went. Her head bent so far underneath her that I feared her neck would break. Finally, the jeep stopped at the edge of the water. Ed and I helped the ranger unchain her and flip her back over. Then all three of us watched as she lay motionless in the surf. Every wave brought her life back to her, washing the sand from her eyes and making her shell shine again. When a particularly large one broke over her, she lifted her head and tried her back legs. The next wave made her light enough to find a foothold, and she pushed off back into the water that was her home. Watching her swim slowly away after her nightmare ride through the dunes, I noted that sometimes it's hard to tell whether you are being killed or saved by the hands that turn your life upside down. May we hear God's call, a call that may send us where we do not want to go, a call that make us, may take us far from all that is familiar, a call that can't and shouldn't be resisted, a call that may turn our lives upside down. But for all that, a call that will also give us renewed purpose, a call to bring healing and hope to this hurting world, a call to follow Jesus in word and deed. May we hear that call and respond. May it be so.